Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome back to Politics as Usual. Apologies for my absence last time. I was uh, away and travelling in New York when the last episode went out, so we let you have a bonus feature on populism, which I hope you enjoyed. Uh, I'm now back in the saddle this week and we have an interview with Sabah Chowdhury, who, as you'll hear, is an absolutely fascinating politician. Sabah is Member of Parliament for part of Dhaka in Bangladesh, who's done some great work in his own country and was previously president of the Interparliamentary Union and is now active in a number of international organisations. But as you'll hear, that's not the reason he's interesting to talk to. I caught him in New York at the UN and need to start by apologising for any background noise that you can hear on this because um, I was only able to grab him in between meetings and we had to quickly find a couple of seats in a quietish part of the building. This took longer than we expected because we spent five minutes walking around with both of us thinking that the other person knew where they were going. When we finally worked out between us that neither of us had a clue, we simply sat on the nearest sofa which turned out to be in a corridor in one of the busiest walkways in the UN at lunchtime. So apologies for any background noises that appear on this, the clumping of feet or the walking conversations between UN employees discussing how to solve the world's problems or more likely what they were having for lunch or who's sleeping with who. Um, There's also the sound of a door alarm going off every so often, which drove me up the wall while I was doing this, but I hope it doesn't interfere too much in the audio. Anyway, um, the conversation with Sabah highlights all the reasons why I wanted to do this sort of podcast in the first place. The story of how he became a politician and what he did subsequently is utterly unique, but at the same time redolent of so many stories I've been told by MPs around the world, starting with the coincidences at the beginning of his career. Um, As he points out, he never sought to be a politician and actually seemed to be actively trying to avoid it. but also the sense of injustice that then led him to pursue the political campaigns that he talks about in the discussion. And lastly, the very human and personal experiences that shaped his view of the world and meant that he was then pivotal in some very significant changes in his home country of Bangladesh. I'm deliberately not giving too much away about the content of this one because I think you'll enjoy it more if I just let it unfold. Uh, There's a bit in the middle in particular about his efforts to outlaw torture in Bangladesh that have a very personal dimension to them as you'll hear. Uh, I should mention that at one point he refers to Sheikh Hasina who is a pivotal figure in one of the stories. I usually try and clarify these points during the interview while I'm talking to the person but To be honest, I was so wrapped up in the story in this case that I just simply forgot to. So very quickly, Sheikh Hasina is the leader of the Bangladesh Awami League Party, of which Sabah is a member. And she has been Prime Minister of Bangladesh since 2009 and was Prime Minister between 1996 and 2001. She is the longest serving Prime Minister in Bangladesh's history. All of which makes the story that Sabah tells when the party was in opposition all the more remarkable. Given all that, I can tell the anticipation is now overwhelming you and I'm just going to get out of the way and let the podcast unfold. I mean, just to start with, we're sat here in the United Nations. You've just come out of a meeting of the 
parliamentarians. Actually, I'm looking out to a tree that I planted. <laughs> uh, really? Just there. It's the tree of peace and unity. Oh, you see well, that? So when, when was that planted? Um, 2015. The, uh, you know, the World War, the 70 years of... Wow. Uh, so that was planted along with the Deputy Secretary General. So on behalf of the member states. Wow. It's not in very good shape now because it's a winter here. So. Well, you've, I mean, you've set this up quite nicely because I was going to say, you've just come out of this meeting. We sat in the UN. You've been president of the Interparliamentary Union, head of uh, the Bangladeshi Cricket Board, which I understand is a big passion of yours. Um, did you expect this to happen when you first entered Parliament in 1996? No. I mean, um, 1996 was more of an accident. wasn't really planned. Um, I was involved in sports administration, you know, I was involved with one of the uh, most popular clubs in Bangladesh called Abahoni. And uh, that club was founded by the brother of the current Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina. Mm. So my uh, sort of interactions with her were from that perspective. Um, so I would see her from time to time and she would ask about politics, but very... Um, not in a very organized manner, just ask, you know, what do people think about this or that or the other. More of a sounding board, you know, yeah. what are the young people thinking. Um, and then the elections came up in 1996, and she showed me a list of names. There were eight names, and my name was there. I didn't, I recognized one or two of the other names. And then she said, I'm going to Saudi Arabia to perform Umrah. You know, Umrah is like, uh, it's not the Hajj itself, but okay. it's uh, when you go to Mecca and uh, you pray there. And, and she said, I'm going to have uh, some special prayers for these eight individuals. Uh, and my name was there. So I said, you know, what is... So this was a complete surprise. Yeah, a complete surprise. And then she said, well, you know, elections are coming up. And uh, so these are my eight nominees for the eight constituencies in Dhaka City. Mm. And uh, the constituency that she was referring to, you know, I, I hardly knew that place. I, I mean, it wasn't where I lived. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not prepared for this. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to run. Then, no, 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 you'll be fine. And she said, okay, I'll come and speak to you after I come back. So she came back, and then the nomination process started. And, you know, I actually disappeared from Dhaka because I didn't want to put in my nomination. Because I didn't want to. So you were, not only did you not want to, you were actively avoiding trying I was to become avoiding, an MP. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I was, I was avoiding getting into politics. I mean, MP was not even thinking about yeah. it. Uh, because it could have been the party. or So it wasn't like I was involved in grassroots politics and I was picked up to be so a candidate. So you were working in sports administration? I was working in sports and I was, you know, I interacted with her because the club that I was with uh, was founded by her brother. Okay. So that's how the initial introduction was. And, um, and then, of course, you know, the nominations came, and uh, I'm not sure I can say this in public, but <laughs> I didn't actually fill up my nomination form. Someone else filled it up <laughs> okay. on my behalf with my name. Well, after 24 years, I think you're probably safe <laughs> by now. <laughs> and then the form was submitted, and the nominations were announced, and that's, that's how I got into politics. And I just had 21 days of campaign. Yeah. Uh, completely new area was not even known to the people there. And the individual that I was up against uh, from the other main uh, party was a former mayor of Dhaka City. You know, he was a mm. minister, he was a political heavyweight. So uh, not even David and Goliath, you know, mm. something completely different because I, mean, I wasn't even in the, in the picture. And I was up against him. And it was a seat that we never won. 
um, since 1973. For 23 years, yeah. we didn't win uh, from that constituency. Uh, and then the unthinkable happened. You know, I actually got elected by a margin of 10,000, and I became my MP. So, was there was there anything in your in your early life background which disposed you towards politics? Or is, I mean, I was interested in sort of uh, interacting with people yeah. and you know doing things. So I was with sports. I was with young people. Um, I liked helping people. You know, I was involved in charitable work and all that. But never political parties. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I never even thought about. Yeah. So it wasn't the traditional politics. And you were brought up in Dhaka, were you? I was brought up in Chittagong. Okay. And then I went over to the UK in 70, 73 for my studies. No, sorry. Uh, 77, I left for the UK. So I yeah. did my schooling, my O-levels, A-levels, uh, university, yeah. uh, postgraduate was all in the UK. Okay. And then I came back to Bangladesh, uh, I think it was in... 82 or 83 with a specific idea in mind about what you do or I was just involved in the family business I mean I wasn't really okay. into politics Which at all um, shipping okay um, construction so it was an established business that my father started um, so I was I was part of that and then of course the sports thing came along and I joined the club that I talked about Abahoni yeah and i tried to do something different you know for the first time in the history of bangladesh football i got players who played in the world cup to play in dhaka so wow. it was two individuals from from um, from iraq really and you know this is very interesting i was talking to someone about it so i heard that these uh, there were two very good players and the name of the club was al rashid uh-huh. which i later found out belonged to one of the sons of saddam hussein okay um so someone said that you know you need to make a call at that time phone communication wasn't that advanced so you had to there was no direct dialing you had to go in through the operator so finally i got through and there was this voice at the other end and he said where are you calling from i said bangladesh he said why are you calling i said i wanted to speak to and I, then i gave the name it was uday you know uday yeah. hussein yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, um so what do you want to talk about i said we need players you know and uh, i have this club in bangladesh and yeah. we are looking for two players from your team and he said something like okay and then he hung up uh, and then four or five days later i get a call from someone at the airport is a supporter of the club that i'm talking about and he worked in customs uh, at dhaka airport and he called up and he was stammering and he says they are here i said who this is the players from Iraq they played in the world cup so <laughs> the guy just send them over you know no clothes or anything just a small bag and they said so he instructed them to come and play in bangladesh because i made the request over the phone wow and i've never had any other discussions or communication with him so that's how i got into uh, sports and you know taking this club up so they were champions yeah. and from that to politics so how did you find i mean that transition is fascinating because you've always struck me as one of the most um to find the right form of words so- socially motivated you 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 are you have campaigned for lots of different causes and for the people of Dhaka and I've, to- I've heard you talk passionately about how you try to support people in your constituency which we'll come on to in a minute but that that sports work seemed to be uh, there, there was a social purpose to it as far as i can tell from what you're saying how did that sort of trans that transition into politics 
feel for you? I mean, what was it first like being uh, elected in, in Parliament all of a sudden? What I you weren't expecting? It was thrilling, you know, I mean, a seat from Dhaka City, which everyone dreams of, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, People normally start their politics maybe in the village and then they work up their way to Dhaka. Is it highly competitive? Very competitive. Why is that? Because Dhaka, Bangladesh is incredibly centralized. You yeah. know, if you're in Dhaka, then everything is okay. If you're outside Dhaka, nothing yeah. works. So Dhaka is prime. Anything that you do in Dhaka, whether you set up a business or you, you know, try and promote a new idea or you talk about a new thing, it, yeah. you have to be in Dhaka. So, um, and so a seat in Dhaka is considered to be you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a privilege and uh, it's one of the best seats you can have. Of course, all MPs are equal. We have 300 seats. But an MP from Dhaka always has a different recognition, uh, some sort of standing, respect. They're looked upon differently. Mm. And how was it when you first got elected and suddenly found yourself in Parliament? Did you know what you were doing? Um, first, I think, you know, I tried to understand what the needs of the constituency were because that's what I thought I should first be looking so at. it wasn't necessarily going into Parliament and standing up and speaking first and foremost. It was actually talking trying to your to voters. Right. Yeah, trying to understand. And I had made some commitments. You know, I talked about uh, the traffic congestion was a huge item at that time yeah. also. And there was one area in particular where you had a complete gridlock. People would be stuck for hours. People have, people in fact died going to the hospital, stuck in an ambulance because they were not getting treatment. So this was my one commitment that you know I will try and build this flyover so people can move from one part of Dhaka city yeah. to the other. So that was my number one commitment. So I said, how do I then realize it? You know, then that becomes important. Uh, other issues I remember were water. There was a scarcity of water. Dhaka was going very fast. Electricity was a major issue. Uh, law and order, because uh, and the linkage between politics and crime was actually quite noticeable at that time. Mm. So uh, there was immunity, so people involved in politics would get involved in criminal activity. So I came in with a clean um, image, and I and the first poster that I had was of a of a mother, you know, holding her son uh, who had been killed by by thugs and miscreants. So that was a major commitment. So this was, you know, someone coming in with actually no track record. Mm. So I was clean from that point of view because yeah. there was nothing to compare me against. Again, someone who was very well established, a political heavyweight. So I was very conscious of that, you know. So making changes yeah. um, to me was, was the most important thing. And did you, I mean, how do you get those sorts of things done? Because, of course, the traditional role of the parliamentarian is to legislate and to call the government to account. But of course, most of the work that effective politicians do is outside of the parliament, mm. where you're actually making things happen. So mm. how, how well, do you So I identified each of the areas. So, you know, when it came to water, so talk to the authority for water, yeah. uh, sink new tube wells so that there's water, you know, to extract water from the ground although not a very good idea now because the water tables are falling alarmingly. Right. But at that time, that was something that I had to do. So that was one. Number two, when it came to law and order, you know, I sat with all of the police people. I said that, look, I don't want you to get involved in politics. Uh, there'll be zero tolerance when it comes to crime. I will not pick up the phone and ask you to release someone who mm. has a political background and has committed a crime, yeah. but I'll hold you accountable. And, you know, I made this very clear differentiation between uh, people who were considered to be bad elements yeah. uh, and those who were in the sort of political inner circle. And of course the flyover, which was the first in Bangladesh, 
the first thing was uh, getting the funds for it. So I mm -hmm. went to the Prime Minister, I said I need the funds. Second was getting an approval from the World Bank because they had their own idea of where the flyover okay. should be in Dhaka City. So there's a lot of background work. And how, uh, I mean, how do you know which levers to pull? Um, how do you know? I just, I just went from, you know, went to everyone and because I was new and I, and I defeated a political heavyweight. Yeah. So everyone says, oh. Well, I was going to say, because you must have been quite young at that point. I was and very the, young. The, the, I, the, I, I think I was the youngest, uh, I think I was the youngest or one of the youngest members. And then I was inducted in the, into the cabinet. That was in 96, I was elected. Yeah. 98, I was brought, in, brought into the cabinet. And I was the youngest member of the cabinet yes. at that time. So that helped me to do a lot of the uh, And was things. it nerve-wracking trying to bring these sort of big senior figures from different authorities together when you were so new and, and so young? It was nerve-wracking, but also I had a business background, so uh -huh. I was interested in getting things done. Yeah, okay. Uh, I hope that doesn't sound like Donald Trump, but I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I, mean, I, I wanted results. Um, so I said, okay, whatever it is. So I was more sort of not so much into the process and not looking at what the bureaucracy has to do, but mm. this is what I need and this is what I need to get done. And I was lucky, I was fortunate. And then I became president of the cricket board yeah. uh, in that same year, 96. And that immediately gave me another profile. Had, that, had you been angling for that? I wasn't angling for that. You know, <laughs> I, mean, uh, I was, in fact, a vice president of the cricket board prior to that because I was in sports administration. Okay. So under the BNP, the other political party, and it was the, uh, I think it was the home minister who was the president of the cricket board. So I was a vice president, uh, okay. being from one of the two big clubs. So your profile by that stage was... Quite yeah, I mean, hard. I knew about the game, so when it came up, I took it. And it, I mean, how that, how did that work evolve? Or what sort? Of, what are the sorts of issues that on the, voters on are the coming to? So, well, no, I mean, more. I'm thinking more about the constituency side of things, and more generally, the sorts of things you're having to deal with. Okay, on so a daily the first basis. thing I did was have a, a constituency office, which was unheard of. You know, because MPs would normally be at home. You know, so you'd go to their home, and then yeah. you would see them when you could. So I set up an office. I had uh, dedicated staff, so even when I was not there, they would attend to queries. You know, there was a ticketing system. Whoever would come up with a complaint, it would be recorded. So the office actually kicked in quite well, mm. and people knew that they didn't need intermediaries. You know, they didn't have to approach someone to come and see me. It's an open-door policy. So I'm here on these days of the week at these times. So it's like a surgery. Yeah. And um, so that was a completely new concept to the and was people. Was that part of your business background, trying to institute this new? No, because I studied in the UK, so I was aware ah. of how it works. Okay. Um, and you know, I mean, I'd seen MPs working and, and all of that. And so. Why? Why do other were other MPs not doing that? Was it a question of cost? One one MP in Nepal, when I asked him about this, said, "You know, voters have said to me, when you want my vote, you come to my house. Now I want to see you. I'm going to come to yours.' And there's actually a logic to that, which is difficult to argue with, but. How do, I mean, why were other MPs not doing it? Mm, I don't know. I think maybe cost might be an issue. The other thing is uh, everyone wants to keep relations informally. You know, I mean, this mm. was very formalized, uh, very transparent. Yeah. So an MP, okay, if you go to his home, he'll probably have two separate rooms. Depends on what room you're going to see him. That determines how close you are and what sort of business you would... Because this would be like, let's say you would have 150 people come in the morning. Yeah. And they would all be in a hall, and I would be in a table on one side, and each would come and talk to me. So unless it was a very private issue, yeah. in which they said that, you know, we want, it's a family issue, then it'd be private. But so there was transparency. You know, and I mean, what sort of things were people coming to you for help with? 
one would be, let's say, a recommendation for a job, which was uh, something uh, very something uh, let's say in a government office they have a problem they're not getting it done yeah. a complaint at the police station had not been registered uh, the city corporation is not doing its job not clearing the clearing the garbage admission in a good school you know which is so all of the issues okay. in dhaka city which are important yeah so, so you're helping the, them to to navigate the formal Navigate the formal thing, let's say if it's a complaint and the police, I feel that is not doing the right thing or maybe they have an yeah. interest or they're supporting someone else. So I would intervene. Yeah. I mean, just to make sure that justice was done. You yeah. know? So if there was an imbalance in that relationship between that individual and the police, uh, correcting the balance, making sure, look, this is what the law says, so this is what you need to do. Okay. And if the police were aware that I am aware of a case, they would normally you know, not do anything yeah. which they shouldn't be doing. And, I mean, what proportion of people were coming to you and asking you directly for financial help or to pay for education? That was, uh, that was for financial help. So that's when I set up the microcredit, um, you know, because I felt that how many people can you help individually? So this is a microfinance credit union which you set up next door to your constituency? No, actually it was the same. It was in the, the same, same, building. same building. So that building became like a focal point. So there was uh, youth training. So for self-employment, so, you know, we would actually train young people on computers, on, you know, uh, women working with sewing machines and yeah. other things. Uh, so and then there was explain, a microcredit. Explain how that, that works, because microfinance credit unions effectively involve lots of people investing their savings and people coming along and asking for loans and people who wouldn't really be treated as, regarded as credit worthy by the traditional banks. You would loan them money to set up their own businesses effectively. And it was, it was literally microfinance. A bank, if you go to a bank in Bangladesh, anything below 100,000 taka, they won't touch right. because the administration cost is yeah. too high. Yeah. So they won't get involved. So mine was maybe 10,000 taka, 5,000 taka, 15,000 taka. So those sort of loans. And how many people, because you were starting to explain, but it sounds like you were doing training as well in that office? Training was for a different purpose. Right. You know, some, of course, would come in and say, okay, I've trained in this, can I get a sewing machine? Yeah. So I said, fine, you know, get a sewing machine. Someone says that I've done the courses on computers, you know, can you give me a computer? So yeah. there I would find two or three other people, say, set up a business, you know, so two or three other people. At that time, it was just word processing. Right. You know, now graphics and all that wasn't yeah. there. So it's just like typing stuff for people in Bangla and English. And that, is that still going? In, in That's still going, but of course it's a higher level of education now. You right. know, it's uh, IT fully geared, you know, more advanced courses. And have, the, have the demands of the constituents or the needs of constituents increased? Gone up. Yes, yeah. they've gone up. Because there's a huge uh, scope for vocational training. You know, how yeah. many people will actually go into tertiary and university? So now vocational training is becoming more important. Yeah. And IT is a big sector in Bangladesh because of the government's plans for digital Bangladesh. So, you know, freelancers are now a major part of the digital economy. Yeah. So a lot of the people come and take their initial trainings here. And is this something which you regard as an important part of your job? Because it's, or is this something, lots of... Um, work that MPs do in constituencies is often about filling gaps left by state provision. I think it's partly gaps and partly also because you want everything to be institutionalized. You know, yeah. So instead of helping an individual or one individual with financial assistance, you know, I'm actually empowering him uh, to be something better. Yeah. Uh, so if I gave him 1,000 or 2,000 taka, 
he's going to spend it. But if I give him a training, that's a lifetime's investment, an asset that he has. Yeah. So it's also building up their capabilities. So have you got any idea how many people have come through your, your scheme? Uh, microcredit so far, you know, I think we have actually worked out. It's been close to 67,000 wow. people have actually taken loans and set up businesses. Okay. So that's huge. Um, the money that we have uh, is now, I mean, by Bangladesh standards, it's high for microcredit. It'll be close to around uh, eight or nine million dollars mm. of savings that has come in, and the savings are all then you know given out as loans. Right. Where you keep the liquidity ratio as prescribed, so yeah. it's a licensed operation because it's a non-banking financial institution. Yeah. You can do everything other than uh, issue checks. I guess, you okay. know, so you have all of the facilities. And have other people copied you in this sort of model? Or you uh, alone? In, some, uh, in some constituencies, I know in Chittagong somebody has uh, something very similar. So he's actually set up an office, uh, as I have, and uh, he has a youth training center, uh, not a micro-credited, but a youth training center there. Right. Um, I was going to turn to some of the stuff that you've done in Parliament, because you... One of the most significant pieces of legislation you pushed and introduced was uh, uh, outlawing torture. Custodial torture. How did that... Explain My how that own experience. Um, in 96, I became a member of parliament. And in 2001, there was a change in government. Um, and at that time, I became also the political secretary to the leader of the opposition. So... You know, I was subjected to imprisonment. You know, I was there, I think, twice. Many cases were filed. Amnesty took up my case. You know, they adopted me as a prisoner of conscience. Amnesty, yeah. Um, and then questions were raised in the UK Parliament of the Foreign Secretary. What was the... What, what was the... What was the... What, what happened? I mean, why, why were you... Um, the first time was... Uh, there was something called Operation Clean Heart. I don't know whether you've heard about it. This is when the government brought in the army and they were picking up people at random, uh, sometimes political people, yeah. uh, supposed to clean up a society of thugs and riskrins. So political people got tracked. And because I was a political secretary to Sheikh Hasina, I was also arrested during that time. Uh, there were no charges. There was a charge under Section 54, which is you know goes back to the British Times. So yeah. if they suspect, they can just arrest you. Right. Um, so I was arrested, and then I was interrogated. I was taken on remand. That's where I was subjected to torture. So that was custodial torture that I faced. And then when I came out of it and we came into government, there are two ways of looking at it. One is that, fine, those responsible, I'll make sure that they go through the same treatment, even worse. Yeah, yeah. And the you other is, you know, yeah, you yeah. change yeah. the system. Yeah. So I wanted to change the system so that nobody else has to go through that same process. I mean, what was that experience like of being in prison, suddenly finding yourself from being, you know, a significant political person to suddenly thrown in jail? For reasons... Horrifying. Yeah. And I think what they try and do is they try and strip you of your dignity. Yeah. Um, they try and break you down mentally. And, and then they torture you to get a confession, which they will then use against you. So the remand was the worst. Uh, the jail was, of course, a big shock. Yeah. You know, I mean, you are... Uh, basically, you are in a... I was put in a cell that was reserved for those who have been given the death penalty. So these are like death penalty cells. So it's like, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> five by nine feet. So you're in a yeah. cell. You're confined. You know, you can't see anyone. Uh, you can't come out. Uh, that sort of a situation. 
So I was there for three months. So that was first. And then secondly, when, you know, Bangladesh unfortunately witnessed a lot of uh, Islamist uh, terrorist bombing and other things during the BNP time. Yeah. So there were cinema halls in a place called Maiman Singh outside of Dhaka, where there were explosions, four or five. And this was groups that were affiliated to, you know, Al-Qaeda and the other organizations. Yeah. But the government at that time, because Jamaat Islam was in the government, so they said that these were not, there were no Islamic uh, elements to these. So I was charged for that. Uh, I was in Dhaka and these things took place. So I was charged uh, for those attacks that I had actually masterminded those attacks. And I was taken in. So that's when questions were asked. You know, Amnesty came in and they said that I've been arrested only for my political views and there's um, nothing to do with the crimes. I mean, was it a deliberate attempt to get you because yeah. of stuff that you had done? Because I you were seen it, as a threat personally. I was, uh, and I was the political secretary to Sheikh Hasina. So the political mm. secretary is a very important position. Yeah. Uh, other than being the gatekeeper in terms of who she's going to see. Yeah. You know, you are the one who is coming up with strategies uh, in opposition, you know, so uh, reform in the electoral uh, system, you know, voters list, you're fighting for that, you're fighting for transparency. So you can't go after Sheikh Hasina because she's so high profile yeah. so you go, go after, after people, people who close. she's close to so I think that and is did what you, I mean when you were in prison did you what, uh, stuff must have been going through your head about the worst that could happen mm. and I mean, what was the worst that, that could the happen? worst was uh, you know they could Operation Clean Heart uh, killed a lot of people mm. uh, people disappeared and then you know they get uh, they disappear yeah uh, so disappearance was, was a possibility. Uh, we were, you know, during the questioning and the interrogation, we were taken out, uh, let's say, at 8 or 9 in the evening from the prison. The jail court doesn't allow that. You know, once the, uh, once the sun goes down, no one can leave the prison. So there, there are no records because you are being taken out and you are being brought back before sunrise. So all night you have been under interrogation and you are tortured. Yeah. And if I wasn't brought back, no one would know what what has happened yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. So those were very uncertain times. Yes. So you do, you, in that period of three months, I guess you didn't know how long you were going to be in prison or whether. And Nothing. I mean, when was it evident that you were going to be released? I didn't know. I mean, because uh, you're completely cut off. You know, there's no radio, there's no news. Yeah. So one day, uh, the jailer came, the head jailer, and he said that there's a court order to release you. So my family had moved, you know, they had gone up to the high court. Mm. Uh, they went through the lower courts, of course, bail was denied. And then it came to the high court. And then bail was finally given. And, I mean, aside from the, the legislation that, that flowed from, from that. Well, that was one. The other was, you know, because the other legislation I pro promoted was violence against women. Right. Because to me, that was also similar, you know, because... Uh, I, I promoted that because when you're in, in prison and you're on remand, on, on, uh, on custody, you're very vulnerable. Uh, so it's not like, you know, you're walking around and someone comes and assaults you. So yeah. in that position, you are then tortured. So I also felt the domestic violence situation where, you know, women or even domestic servants, um, that's also a similar situation because they're weak, you know, they have no voice. Yeah. So I thought that I should also move that legislation. And I moved it, and then the government said, okay, this is a good uh, legislation, we will bring it, will you withdraw yours? It was a private member bill. I said, I'll withdraw as long as these provisions are included. 
So I did withdraw and those provisions were included. So to me what was important is that we had legislation yeah. and there should be some legislation in the books. It uh, didn't, didn't matter whether the private member bill or the government was bringing it. So yeah. that also I promoted at that time. I mean, and as well as those individual initiatives, did it change your approach to politics after, after yeah, that? Because then you always took the side of where is the injustice? You know, where are people being discriminated? Yeah. Where are people vulnerable? I mean, it's the same thing. So the leper community in Bangladesh, uh, we have a law, or we had a law, which goes back to, I think, 1890, which called for segregation. Mm -hmm. At that time, there was no treatment for lepers. So I took up that cause, and I repealed that act so that lepers can now receive treatment in government hospitals. You know, this was, again, a colonial okay. act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was another legislation, which yeah. was influenced by my own personal experience. So whenever someone is being discriminated, or whenever someone is being put in a vulnerable position, I always felt that I should do something. Over the, over the last few years, you've played an increasingly um, significant international role with the, with the Interparliamentary Union and other stuff. Does this, how does this inform your... How does, how does your experience of Dhaka inform what you do internationally and equally? How does your experience at the international level shape what you do back at home? Well, I think it starts off with uh, your own national context. I mean, climate change for us is, is huge. Yeah. It's an existential threat. So I, you know, I picked up on climate change, uh, the related issue of environment, which I always felt strongly about. So I brought in a provision in our constitution, which actually talks about environment biodiversity. So that was my big yeah. legislative role. I mean, these, what you've talked about were acts, were laws, yeah. but that was actually an amendment to the constitution of Bangladesh. It was Article 18A. Uh, so preserving uh, the environment for current and future generations. So that to me was important because young people were important, you know, sports. I always thought about in terms of motivation, well, you know, what sort of a world are we leaving behind for our children mm. and, you know, their children. So that's why the future generations and preserving, protecting the environment was so important. Now it's part of the Bangladesh constitution. Mm. So climate change I was very involved with from the beginning. Uh, disasters. Bangladesh is, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of the disaster risk profile, it's one of the highest. So it's really our national experiences there and our national context which encouraged me to take an international role and play an international role in that regard. So that's why I champion these disasters, uh, disaster risk reduction, climate mm. change, adaptation, environment. So these were important. And of course, the rule of law, you know, I mean, if you look at uh, the rule of law, you are, none is above it or none is actually uh, below the rule of law. So when it comes to the custodial torture, when it comes to the violence against women, when it comes to lepers, you know, these are all part of that same process. Yeah. And the IPU was almost the perfect organization, you know, in terms of trying to promote these at the international level. Yeah. So I got involved in the IPU initially at the uh, Committee on Peace and Security. So I chaired that, you know, and then I became the, the president because these were all areas that were of interest. And do you still see those, those links between the international and the, the national? Yeah. And what's, what's, what still drives you after 24 years? Of because there's so much to be done. Parliament? You know, I mean, um, there's so much to be done. And I think the challenge is the headwinds get stronger. So I think it's important that you don't quit. You know, you stay in the fight and you continue to fight. I think that's very important. So, I mean, if you look at it globally, multilateralism 
is under pressure. Mm. I'm not saying on the retreat, but certainly under pressure. Mm. Uh, the whole question about what is the truth, you know, and then you have alternative reality, which is coming up. You have the executive and the government trying to impose its own authority. So the idea of separation of powers, idea of parliament being a co-equal branch of government, these are all concepts under threat. Mm. And I think you need to stand up and fight. Do you feel that battle is, is being won in Bangladesh? or In Bangladesh, I think we are certainly far more advanced than we were 10 years ago. Yeah. But it's not over. You know, I think it's, a, it's always going to be a, a marathon rather than a 100-meter sprint. Yeah. So I think it's important that you continue to fight. And you try and encourage other MPs, you know, motivate them, which I try and do. You know, I try and talk to the younger MPs, uh, the women MPs who are coming in. And I'm saying that, you know, this is what you should get involved in. And I've always believed that, fine, you are elected by, by a constituency, but then you should also have a constituency of issues that you promote yeah. and values that you promote. So one is, you know, representation of individuals, and the other is representation of those values and those, uh, those areas which are important. Yeah. And how long will you continue doing this, do you think? <laughs> um, I'm certainly not uh, at the start of the journey. I think I'm towards. <laughs> you the still end look of it. very young, <laughs> um, but it's it's been a long innings. You know, I mean, it's. Um, I was first elected in 1996, and um, and I enjoy it. You know, I think it's it's not just something that I I do because I need to do it. I think it's a passion. It it drives you, and I think that's very important in politics, because unless you have that passion, unless you have that commitment, uh, you give up all too easily yeah. um, because as I said the headwinds are strong uh, sometimes it's frustrating uh, but what keeps you ticking what keeps you going is your own motivation your own belief yeah. uh, that's where you draw inspiration from and I think that's that's needed otherwise you lose hope and hope is the last to die so that can't happen that's a great place to finish Saba thank you very much for your time pleasure hope you enjoyed all of that. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more stories from the front line of politics, although I have no idea who it will be or indeed which part of the world we'll be talking about. But I guess that makes it all the more interesting, doesn't it? Until then, bye. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpcovenants.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online. Thanks for listening.